You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's my honor yet again this morning to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this sermon, which is Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you want to use that physical black pew Bible, it's probably nearby. You can find that around page 190 toward the end of the New Testament. As Pastor Isaac has profoundly led us to pray, we have asked God that he would renew our vision for this Christian life that we're running together And so we come to the Word of God as we do every Sunday and every time we open the Word of God together over coffee or lunch or community group or at any other time, we come to the Word of God expectant that He is going to answer our prayers, He's going to refresh our vision, and we come to this text with that particular desire and prayer on our hearts. So we pray that God will do His work among us in the ways that only He can. You notice that we've come to Revelation chapter 4, and it's verses 1 through 11, which is a little longer than normal. It's, in fact, the entire chapter. But we're coming to this chapter with a a renewed hope as we continue to see such rich truth coming out of the book of Revelation, where our main objective is to exalt our king, and that is exactly what happens in this chapter of of chapter 4. As I think often, and I'm sure you do as well, about the Christian life, my attention is so often drawn to other kind of earthly things, common grace experiences that help me to understand what my Christian life is like. And I'd have to say lately over recent months, maybe even years, my attention keeps coming back to long distance runners because there are so many parallels between those two things, the Christian life and long-distance running. They're both very similar in certain ways, and therefore, finding the principles that make long-distance running work are also principles that seem to help us make long-distance living work as Christians. In particular, I've listened quite a bit to one runner whose name is Ryan Hall, actually a believer, and is best known, though now he's retired, for being the first U.S. runner to ever break one hour running a half marathon, which if you don't know is incredibly, incredibly fast. And not only that, but to be the first U.S. runner, the only U.S. runner to ever run a marathon in under two hours and five minutes. And so I've been interested to know what makes him tick when he is out on the road running. And as I have heard him, there's a couple of, 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 of principles that have particularly made an impression on me because of how they overlap into the Christian life. The first is that a runner of that kind must always keep his or her head up, looking forward. It's one of the great errors of long-distance running because just like in the Christian life, we become so tired that suddenly we start to lose our form, we lose our posture, our heads dip down, we're looking right down at the ground, and we start to sort of grind down to a slower and slower speed. And therefore, it's so important to keep our heads up looking where we're going. Of course, there are times we need to look in front of us so that we don't trip. That's true in the Christian life as well. But ultimately, what is it that the Word of God continues to do? And what we'll see this morning the Word of God will do in Revelation chapter 4 is to get our heads up, to get us looking in the midst of a tiring life forward and out at where we're going, to whom we're running. 
But that's not all. There is a second principle that has really stuck with me, and it's the mentality of the home stretch. This is another kind of common grace thing in the world among runners that translates over into the the special grace of the Christian life because those runners know that once they reach halfway or once they get to that point where they they feel that they're starting to, to wind down and lose their composure, they begin reciting to themselves over and over again, home stretch, home stretch, heads up, looking forward, knowing they're on the home stretch. Well, the translation to the Christian life is obvious because that's what the Word of God is telling us over and over again. That's what the Word of God means when it says you're living in the end times. While we know that Jesus Christ and His return is imminent, it could come at any moment, we believe, according to what the Word of God tells us, we also know that these end times have been going on for quite a long time. It feels like we've settled in after 2,000 years of church history, and we wonder, are these exactly the end times? I thought they would be over by now. But nevertheless, what end times means is home stretch. It means that in the the redemptive plan of God, we are on the home stretch at the end. And that's a mentality that the word of God, particularly revelation, brings to us over and over again. We want to capture at least those two principles from this text and a few others as we have a unique vision given to us in Revelation chapter 4. We see in chapter 4, you'll notice first, another door. If you've been keeping up with our preaching through the first part of this book, we've heard about doors a number of times. Not too long ago, we, we read about Jesus saying that he had the key of David and that when he shuts doors, no one can open them. And when he opens doors, no one can shut them. We also just recently heard about Jesus standing at a door and knocking at the church of Laodicea, a church that had drifted far from him, a church that had lost their composure, perhaps dropped their heads, forgotten about the home stretch, become distracted by other things. And he's knocking on the door saying, if anyone will open the door, I will come in and revive you. I will give you new life. There's another door. But notice what we find in Revelation chapter 4. We find another door, but this door, it is not shut and closed. It is standing open. And it's not a door on earth of a a church in the world. It's the door open in heaven. And there's a voice that is calling out to John to come look into this heavenly scene. You see, what we've been looking at in Revelation so far, especially chapters 2 and 3, is a kind of vision of life in the world. It has been Jesus communicating to his seven churches about what's going on in their lives on the earth at those times, giving the view from below. But now we have an incredible shift in the book of Revelation, one that we do not want to take lightly. And that shift is now a scene shift from the view below to the view above. Listen to what he says starting in verse 1. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. We want to grasp this morning this vision from above. Because I think that most of us know as we think about our Christian lives that the view from below is helpful, but it is not enough. It is important that we know the things going on in our lives. We, we need a kind of self-awareness about the trials and temptations and troubles that all of us face. We need to understand the world around us, even our own flesh, 
even the devil who is tempting us and accusing us in this present moment. But that's not enough. We must be heavenly minded. We need to lose the sense that that we could be so heavenly minded that we would be no earthly good because for many of us, quite the opposite has happened. I have become so earthly minded. I've become so concerned about the view from below that I've missed the view from above. Well, here we have an incredible work of God's grace. This is a picture of God's grace, that he would open a door in heaven and that he would allow us, us and others with us, to see into that door and to see what is going on from the view above, that he would allow us, mere mortals, sinners at that, those who had been treacherous and treasonous until Christ saved us, that he would let us, of all people, us, see through his eyes, to see what he sees, that it would help us in this long-distance race of the Christian life. It is an incredible work of God's grace. In other places, the Bible tells us that where there is no revelation, people perish. Where God is not revealing himself to people, we are left to perish because we're left to our own devices. But here again, think about what God has given to you. Think about what he's given to me. He's given us a revelation. All throughout his word, this canon of scripture is a revelation ultimately of who he is and what he wants and what he's like and the declaration of his love and grace for us as his chosen people. But not even that. It goes farther than that in that inside that revelation, he has placed even in there a revelation. And that's what we've been reading from. That's what we've been studying together. And that's what we look at again this morning. We want to see the view from above. And we're going to notice this morning in the time that we have across these 11 verses, three truths, three views from above that will sustain us in the Christian life if we embrace them and if we take them seriously, and I hope all of us, without one left out, that all of us will. Here's the first. Listen to this. First, we see that in this view from above, this view, this scene of heaven, there is a throne. And this throne is central. And this throne is revealed to us so that we would remember what we often forget. And that is that our God is king. Listen to what it says in verse 2. Immediately, I was in the spirit. This is John's way of just communicating to us that this is not an ordinary kind of thing that's happening. It's not an everyday situation. It's not just a normal par for the course life on earth. In fact, he's being caught up into this revelation, into a kind of vision in which God is showing him supernatural things. That's the view from above. And he says, behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and someone was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So central to the vision that he's giving to John, and he has then, by recording this for us, central to the vision is a throne, and on the throne is a person you're getting the reminder of what heaven is all about. Heaven is not about the experiences that we may have there. It's not about, though they will be wonderful, the human relationships that we will have there. Our relationships will be restored. Where there was conflict among believers, it will be done away with. There will be no sin, no crying. 
we will have, I think, a renewed memory of all of those times that God was at work in our lives and we enjoyed all of these events and moments together in this Christian life, on the road. But make no mistake that at the center of heaven, the ultimate object, the ultimate focus is on a king. Notice what he says. He says he's sitting like a, the one who is sitting on the throne is like a jasper stone, like a sardius. Uh, One theologian named Gordon Fee points out that, that these are two stones that seem to show up as the first and the last of 12 stones that are described in Exodus 28 in the breastplate of the high priest. Both of these stones, uh, most likely red, carry their own symbolism. Perhaps the first, his majesty and his holiness, and the second, his incredible wrath. So you're seeing this incredible picture of glory, even as it's being described and symbolized in the different aspects of the vision. And yet then we read on and we find that the throne is encircled by a rainbow. Well, where do we find a rainbow in the word of God? Of course, we find that as the the symbol of God's faithfulness to Noah, never to flood the earth again. And you see the rainbow in the sky that he's made a covenant with Noah, an incredible picture of his grace. So you catching what this vision is about? Are you catching what is at the center of heaven, this heavenly scene? It is a combination of glory and of grace. And there, as we read on, we find in verse 4 that around the throne, where there is a rainbow, there are 24 thrones, most likely representing all of the, the redeemed people of the world. Most likely, it seems that these are those who are gathered together, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles brought together. There's a lot of debate about that, but it certainly does seem, because of the picture of worship and because of their relationship to the king, that these 24 thrones are representing all of the redeemed who are there. So around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting there, those representing all of the redeemed, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. They had been made royalty. They'd been brought into a a royal place underneath the, the sovereign rule and love of an incredible king. And out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. This is a vivid picture. In fact, it's so vivid of a picture that that even English doesn't do it justice. You may have in your copy of God's Word some kind of a note or, or a marking. Mine is an asterisk next to the word came, flashes of lightning. And it's just a place where the translators of your Bible have pointed out that that. They have translated this into a past tense of something that had happened because they didn't have another good way in English to really get the sense. But when you read this in the original language, the clear sense is there is an emphatic, vivid, present experience going on. It's not just that there were lightning flashes and there was thunder and it happened, but rather that it is always happening. It is a vivid presence out of the throne always flashes lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. It's a vivid picture of God's glory, his majesty. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, likely representing the the perfect spirit of God who who is infinite. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass 
like crystal. You see, there's something about getting the view from on high that changes your perspective about everything below. This is a vision from on high. There are incredible scenes in our world. We've seen some of them if you've gotten to travel at all. The Grand Canyon is one that may come to mind. 277 miles long, 18 miles wide. It's larger than the state of Rhode Island. You go there and you see all of the the crags and the peaks and the valleys and the colors and and the way things have been worn down by the wind, the the incredible rainbow of oranges and yellows, and it's beautiful. It's the kind of thing, though, that you can't completely take in with your human eyes all at once. It's incredible. But then what we have the advantage of today in this modern moment is now we've gotten the view from on high through satellite technology. You've seen pictures not just of outer space, but looking back down at the world. And it's as if the Grand Canyon is boring. It's as if it it loses all of its luster. It's, It's not as beautiful as it was when we get the view from above. We get the big view of what really is going on in the world, what the world really looks like. It's this higher vantage point that brings an entirely different dimension into everything that happens below. But this is the issue. You and I are notorious for ignoring the view from above. In fact, I would say in my life and perhaps in yours that when things get hard for me or they don't go my way, the view from above is the first thing to go. I completely lose sight of anything eternal. My life becomes wrapped up as I'm looking down at my feet, trudging along through the difficulties of life as though this is all that there is. I start to panic. I start to worry. I start to think that everything's spinning out of control and nothing's going right and it's all up to me and I've got to keep my children safe and I've got to keep my wife together and I've got to keep my home going and I've got to keep the world running. But the only reason that I think that It's because I've lost the view from above. I've lost the view of what's really going on in the world. But the good news is that the Lord in all of his grace and mercy has delivered to me the view from above. I can read it over and over and over again. That's why it's quite amazing that I would go any period of time without reading the word of God. He's put it all right here for me to keep it before my eyes And here, what is he trying to give us? What does he want us to try to imagine by giving us these these symbols, these pictures, these descriptions that are otherworldly? He's giving a vision of majesty, of splendor, of glory, of ultimate radical control, of faithfulness. He's given us here, at least in these first few verses, the first six is what we've seen so far, symbols. And they are symbols of glory and grace. Remember that as we move on in this text and on into Revelation, what's at the center? What is at the center of this vision? A throne, which represents a king, and a rainbow, which represents his grace. That's the view from above. That's the view of your life and mine if you're in Christ. 
Everything happening down around here is all under the control of a king who is full of grace and mercy, who is a covenant God who will never let us go. I know that those sound like trite words because we say them so often. He'll never let you go. He'll never leave you or forsake you. But that's my problem. Those words have become trite. Those words have become routine. It's the ordinary thing. Well, of course. What we need is we need God by his spirit to give us a fresh vision of this so that we can apply this text in our lives here below by giving him glory and resting in his grace. These are the first two little bits of application that you and I should take away from this. If you want to take this incredible passage, the first six verses, and apply it to your life this week, here's what you should do. You should set off in the morning with an intentional focus to do two things. Glorify God and to enjoy his grace. You should write that down. Glorify God and enjoy his grace. Because that's what this vision is all about. That's what it's bringing about in your life and mine. If we were to shift our focus in this way, there's no telling the kinds of things that God would do. There's no telling the ways that the colors in this world below would begin to pop and brighten. There's no telling the way that we would maintain our composure in times of conflict and difficulty and sickness and trouble and fear and temptation we would take this and apply it to our lives, and that's where we must begin. But that's not all. Not only is there a throne that shows that he is king, but also, as we see next, there are surrounding creatures. This vision is getting more wild by the moment. Creatures showing that he is the object of worship. Not only sitting there in heaven, not only placed there above, but that he is the object, he is the center, he is the focal point. Listen to what verse 6 says as it continues. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So moving out from the throne, we see that it's encircled by these four creatures. We get a description of them in verses 7 and 8. Listen to the way they're described. Now, remember what's going on here. We're we're getting a vision. We're getting an explanation or a revelation of what it's like in heaven and what really matters. What is God like? He's giving us this vision so that it may seep down into the the nooks and crannies of everyday life here on the street as we remember what's going on in heaven. Verse 7 tells us the first living creature was like a lion. A lion. What do you think of? This is ordinary language trying to bring heavenly truth down. What do you think of when you think of a lion? You think again of a king the king of the jungle, ultimate authority. Here, this first creature is a a representation of some attribute of God that he is like a lion. The second creature is like a calf. Perhaps this is reflecting his perfect activity in addition to his perfect authority. A calf or cattle would be known to anyone who was reading this then and perhaps even now as, as a servant animal in perfect service and activity. The third creature had a face like that of a man, the pinnacle of God's creation, perhaps representing his perfect majesty in that he's created people in his own image for a reason because his image is supreme. And therefore, this creature has a face like a man. But then the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, perfect in 
deity soaring in the heavens with majesty and with grace. These four creatures do not exist in and of themselves. They're not there for their own good. They're not show-offs. They're not the stars of the show. They're actually there to show off the king who sits on the throne. That's their whole purpose. And so everything about them is doing that very thing. As you see these creatures, you're seeing that they're, he is strong like a lion. He serves like an ox. He sees like a man. He is swift like an eagle. But not only that, you notice something else kind of strange about these creatures is that they're full of eyes in front and behind. We're really being stretched here, are we not? We're being stretched in our imagination to try to make sense of what's going on in this incredible vision as John is is caught up in the spirit. The word of God is stretching us out like a rubber band beyond what we're, we're really normally able to do. It's pulling us and requiring something of us, bending us to our limits. I'll admit it's hard for us to take in this vision. And I don't blame anyone, myself or anyone else, who wrestles with this. Really? Anyone in this room or any other church who acts like going to heaven and worshiping God and being there and everything in Revelation is just like obvious and normal, like, of course, I can't wait to go there. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait to go worship forever, all day, singing the song, the same song over and over again. I don't get it. I don't get it. But that's sort of the point, right? It's something that you can't get. That's why it's having to come down to you. But what you do get are the the elements. You're getting a foretaste. You're getting a sense of what it will be like. But I assure you, when you get there, it will not all just instantly make sense. It will be incredible. You won't walk in and say, there they are. That's exactly what I thought it was going to be like. (laughs) You're probably going to walk through the door and you're going to stop, and you're just going to try to take it in. I think that's what I'll be doing. Because I look at this door, and I peer in, and that's all I really know to do is to take it in. What is going on here? These creatures have eyes on the front of their heads and on the back of their heads. That's an incredible picture, but don't get sidetracked by that, because remember, it's just another way of, of expressing the glory of the God who sits on the throne. But he is omniscient. He sees everything. That's a comforting truth to me because so often when I lose sight of this higher view because of the earthly realities that I'm wrestling with, it's one of the first things that I think. God is not watching. He's closed his eyes. He's, he's taken a nap. Where is he? He doesn't know what's going on. If you knew what was going on, why wouldn't you be here helping me? But nevertheless, we see these four living creatures each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. This is sort of the the climactic moment of this passage. We have been moving through the door, getting to the center of what's really going on. And what is at the center? What's at the center of the throne? What's at the center of the scene with the person on the throne, surrounded by the rainbow with the the other thrones and the elders and the four living creatures who all represent different attributes of God and they're covered in eyes on the outside and the inside? Ultimately, it is worship. 
It's pointing out that this heavenly scene is all coming to the climactic moment of eternal, unending worship in which everyone who is around is satisfied by this moment because what is supposed to be happening is happening. And you get a vision of it here. What do these creatures continually say? Holy, holy, holy. All the time, day and night, they never stop saying these words, holy, holy, holy. And there's no mistake that it's three. Two would be great, but three is perfection. Three times holy, infinite, infinite holiness. And that he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. Now, this is a little bit of the text here in verse 8 that brings me a particular measure of help in my life. I hope it would bring the same measure of help in your life. Is that even in this, in this vision that's being given, there is a recognition of what's happening below. It's not heavenly mindedness that is no earthly good, but in fact, it recognizes the difficulty of life in this earth. Because he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. You see, there's another one of those, those fingers lifting your chin to look up and look out, to look forward and to remind yourself before God that this is the home stretch and that he's coming again because he's giving us this, this vision of hope. But make no mistake that the one who was and who is and who is to come, that he is the object of all worship. That there is no one like him. There is no one worthy as he is. And there are two ways that our worship can go wrong. Sometimes it goes wrong here or, or in our homes or in our workplace or anywhere else that we go. Worship, in order for it to be true and right, is to be worship of the right object in the right way. But there are ways that that can go wrong. There's two of them. Sometimes you and I get caught up when we lose sight of this heavenly vision that we worship the wrong object the right way. Our hearts crave the, the, the wrong object. We give our lives to it. We give our attention to it. It becomes ultimate to us. But that's where we've gone wrong because we've replaced the true God with something else. It happens all the time. Or we worship the right object in the wrong way. We have the, the God of the universe there before us and yet our hearts are half-hearted. We give him only a little bit of our attention or we withhold certain things from him. But instead, we want to be like these creatures. We want to take up this mantra. Pair this with your focus this week on glorifying God and enjoying his grace that you take up this mantra that is so important. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. If you and I were to do that, we will, we will chart a course right down the middle of those two mistakes. And we will be worshiping day in and day out, moment by moment, in our regular daily lives, even here in worship, that we'll be worshiping the right object who is the God of the universe. And we'll be worshiping the right way, declaring to him and about him what is ultimately true, that he is holy, three times holy, and that he is our Lord, and that he is almighty. We learn this from these creatures but third and finally this morning, we want to notice one other truth about this heavenly vision, and it is something that this worship shows us. 
You see, everything is kind of building on itself like, a, like, a, like building blocks. First, the centrality of the throne shows us that there's a king. We get a picture of somewhat of what he's like. Then that continues to develop as the surrounding creatures show that he's not just sitting there, but he's the object of worship. And now as worship is developed, we see why. Why is he worshiped? And the answer is, he is worthy. Look at verse 9. When the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, it's as though the vision can't get enough. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. As you look at a text like this, you ought to ask, where am I? Where are you in this text? Well, it's obviously obvious that we're, we're not those creatures. We're not the Lord himself, obviously. We're not what we see in other passages, the angels that always attend to him, ministering to him and doing his bidding. But as we saw earlier, we find ourselves right here among the 24 elders, all of the redeemed who by faith have come to Christ. Because of his grace, they have come into him and come to belong to him, be saved by him. But what is our role? Notice what happens here when these creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. They are leading into worship. It leads the 24 elders, the sea of the redeemed, to do three things. This is where we're getting in this vision another helpful picture of what the Christian life should be like, what we are pursuing together in this long marathon in this life until he comes again. Notice the three things that happen. The 24 elders fall down. This is a picture of humility and honor. That's what happens when you honor someone. You put yourself below them, but, but, but they don't just bow down or they don't just shake a hand. They fall down. They fall down before him who sits on the throne. But not only that, they, they don't fall down in some kind of trembling fear of wrath because the wrath is taken away. What do they do? They worship him. This is an interesting word, proskuneo, it's the word that means to kiss the hand. If you want to put an earthly picture on it, kissing a hand or bowing your forehead down and touching the ground at the foot of another person is what this word means. This is the picture of what the redeemed, all of the Christians in heaven do when the four living creatures give glory and thanks and honor to the king who sits on the throne. They are compelled to bow to kiss his hand, to touch their foreheads to the ground beneath his feet. And when they do, they take off their crowns. This royal symbol of having come to belong to the king, to actually have a place, of a rightful place in his kingdom, and yet they take off their crown and they cast them at his feet. 
before the throne and they say, he is worthy. Worthy are you. Notice that they say it directly to him. They don't just say it about him. This is a a real shift in the Christian life that no longer as we mature in our faith, no longer do we just talk about God. Our lives don't just say things about God. We say things to him. That's what heaven will be like. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Glory and honor and thanks have been given to him by the four creatures, and therefore then there's this incredible picture of worship. But you see why he's worthy. It tells you there at the end of verse 11. Because of his will. Because everything was created by his will. Do you know what this is? It's another picture of glory and grace. Glory and mercy. Glory and love. Isn't it an amazing thought that God willed for you to live? That means that he wants you here. It means that he has a place for you. He has a purpose for you, even in his kingdom. And he has willed that you be in Christ. He wants you here. He wants me to be a part of what's going on in his kingdom. And he does it by his will. Therefore, we say, you are worthy. You're worthy of all of these things, Lord, because you have done all for us. You have given all for us. We are what we are ultimately because of you. And you are worthy. As we come to a close, I want to leave you just with actually a hymn. A hymn by a hymn writer named Reginald Heber. In 1826 on Trinity Sunday, he provided this hymn to the church, a church in England. And it's a song that goes like this. It's actually based upon this very text, and I want you to hear these words because these words so captivated him that he wanted to put them into song so that we could sing them together down through the ages from then on. You know this song already because it's entitled Holy, 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 but listen to the words. See if you can in your own heart, maybe out loud if you wish, to sing these words as you hear them. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which art, wert, and art, and evermore shall be. Holy, holy, holy. Now listen to this, because this is where it hits real life. This is where it comes out of Sunday school and VBS, and it comes into your marriage and your home and your parenting and your workplace, all the way into the street. Holy, holy, holy. Though the darkness hide thee, Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. 
Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This hymn and this text are intended by God to cause us to give him more of our lives. And so as we come to a close and we prepare to stand and sing again, this is a worthy question for all of us to consider. What are we withholding? All of us are withholding something. I'm withholding things from him. He's certainly worthy far beyond what I'm giving him. But even as we sing now, perhaps we we allow that question to rest on our minds, on our hearts. And perhaps he will help us to determine something that we could give to him, something to show that he is worthy as we glorify him and as we enjoy his grace with this vision from on high, this scene of heaven. And we pray now that God will use it to work in us a renewed sense of his presence in our lives and of his majesty and glory. And perhaps you're here this morning or you're on the live stream or a recording and you need to come to Christ. I pray that today is your day you would come to this king and you would join the 24 elders, all of the redeemed people who will worship him forever, and that this heavenly vision will change this earthly below for all of us. Let's stand and pray as we prepare our hearts to sing once again. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks today because of your incredible grace and mercy, because of the way that you love us and care for us, and because you have loved us by giving us a vision of heaven. Were it not for this vision, were it not for your word, we'd have no way of knowing what heaven is like. We'd have no way of knowing what we're looking up and out to. We'd have no way of knowing where this home stretch will lead, but you've given it to us. You've written it down for us, and we pray today that you would take these words of your word and that you would bury them into our hearts, that they would bear fruit this morning. Comfort us with them, motivate us with them, encourage us with them, make us to glorify you and to enjoy your grace this morning and all the days that come together. In Jesus' name, amen.